The second year of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has passed, as Ukraine continues to fight for its sovereignty and justice against the Russian aggressor. The international community proceeds to support Ukraine in its struggle through military, economic and diplomatic means. However, its fight is far from over, with more international aid required to hold off Russia. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. I am joined by my colleagues Anastasia Heresimchuk and Darya Sinhayevska, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World, to discuss key events in and around Ukraine for the last week. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Last week marked several important anniversaries, several tragic anniversaries in Ukraine. And the events we were remembering about were important not only for Ukrainians, but for the whole world regarding the consequences of the events we were remembering about. Here I mentioned the 20th of February when the shootings on Maidan took place. It was 10 years ago, the peaceful protesters the participants of the Revolution of Dignity were shot, uh, were shot uh, in the center of Kiev by pro-Russian and Russian forces, and it was the point of no return. That was the moment when Ukrainians, uh, when Ukrainians, were killed for their values. The Revolution of Dignity was exactly for values, and Ukrainians started fighting for their right for self-determination exactly at that moment. And another important anniversary, let's say black anniversary, that was marked the last week was actually the beginning of the occupation of Crimea. Uh, the Russian forces started its aggression exactly at that moment. It was the first stage of Russian aggression against Ukraine. And by the way, today is the day of resistance to occupation of Crimea. Ten years ago, um, Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars living in uh, Crimea gathered uh, to oppose Russian occupation, actually. It was their response to the um, so-called protest orchestrated by Russian forces uh, in support of, uh, of succession of Crimea uh, from Ukraine. So um, Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars expressed their opposition to these actions. And unfortunately, the next day, 10 years ago, the pro-Russian special forces and Russian special forces actually uh, captured, seized the governmental buildings in Crimea. So these were the dark pages of the recent Ukrainian history and the repercussions of these actions are still felt. And of course, on the 24th of February, we marked the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion. Uh, 
the um, most recent stage of Russian aggression. We cannot say that the war started uh, that, on that day in that year. The new stage of Russian aggression actually started, but the whole world paid more close attention to what actually was going on in Ukraine. And all the Ukrainians felt what uh, Russian aggression actually means. So um, as you might heard, as you might read, when Ukrainians are talking about their experience of the beginning of the full-scale invasion, they often say that the 24th of February actually is the day that is still lasting. And it's hardly possible not to uh, address to our emotions here while we're remembering this day. And the Ukrainians experienced a wide range of emotions and had uh, different experiences. But what is true is that actually we got stuck at that moment. Uh, two years after we understand that, yes, the life is going on, we keep doing what we should do, but at the same time... Um, our perception of reality and our perception of future is much different than it was before the full-scale invasion. And if we talk about um, everyday life, about the plans on future uh, that we Ukrainians have and people in Europe have, these are different perceptions of these important things. And um, it is uh, maybe tiring to hear about these negative experiences all the time. And Ukrainians are tired and exhausted after two years of constant battle. Uh, but still, it is important to talk about it. It is important to share personal experiences, even though it's unpleasant, even though uh, people don't want to hear about negative emotions. Still, um, what happened on the 24th of February is actually a continuous nightmare. And um, it's a painful, it's a, it's a soaring wound uh, that tortures all of us. And maybe, Dasha, do you remember how you uh, felt that day and how your perception of reality changed after the 24th of February? Uh, well, basically, I was waked up with, uh, you know, this uh, waking up call uh, of uh, my relatives, my family, and uh, this uh, legendary phrase that uh, the war has started, uh, um, like, hit my heart. And uh, I, I remember that, um, although, you know, being an analyst by ourselves, we never um, expect this to, to, to happen in reality, as far as a lot of um, like uh, experts with, with their profound knowledge um, analyze that uh, it's not of an interest of Russia. Russia uses uh, like great powers, uh, hybrid forms of warfare to um, strike in, in neighboring states. But uh, at the same time, when this uh, air raid sirens uh, went off and uh, we all uh, were thinking about, oh, when uh, when this you know like a uh, zero point uh, had passed when when do we you know um when when did we miss this um this monster you know um like uh, 
coming to our homes. And uh, we, we understand that uh, this war started back in 2014, but at the same time, those emotions that like um, circled in our minds was that uh, how could it be true? Um, that's that was the first, you know, the very first emotion of that events, and then uh, the like calculations of okay, then uh, there is the volunteer uh, center nearby, and we need uh, these, you know, like uh, alarming um, uh, pack uh, as it is called, like with the most necessary things. And I remember that um, uh, I urgently, you know, looked for some. Um, initiatives for for some uh, initiatives that uh, raised money for our um, defenders, for all those people in need, of those people who were in uh, territories that were bordering with, uh, you know, Russian uh, Russian occupied territories, and uh, who encountered uh, this uh, this barbarous monster at first. So, so yes, the, the first emotion was um, like, how can it be the the real thing? And the the second one, okay, it's real thing, and we have to deal with it, and we have to deal with it with uh, with dignity, because in Ukrainian context, this value and this feeling is very important and uh, of of a significant meaning, as probably all of our listeners know, and uh, with the the, uh, greatest efficiency for our defenders who are still uh, defending our lives. What you've just told actually reverberates uh, inside me as well. And I'm sure that uh, it's uh, something that millions of Ukrainians felt like when uh, when you understand that the grave danger is looming and that um, the aggression that started in 2014 uh, would have this continuation. It was absolutely <clears throat> logical and not unexpected. But still, as a human being, with these uh, psychological coping mechanisms, you still want to deny, you still don't want to believe that something awful would happen. And like, believe us that it's a terrible, like, I, I would say the most terrible thing when you wake up in the morning and uh, you receive the calls uh, and messages from your relatives and friends, you hear sounds of explosions and you read like, it started, the war has started. So uh, you get numb at this moment and uh, for, for some time you, you don't know what to do and like your life may end every moment. And and now we, uh, after two years of the full-scale invasion, we got used to it. We got used to this brutal reality and uh, we know how to react to certain things even though the danger is... Uh, still looming, the danger, we are, we are all still uh, in danger. But we just got used to live uh, under these circumstances. So yes, the war has been going on for 10 years. And what is very symptomatic here and what is important to emphasize here, that the unwillingness to pay proper attention to what uh, happened in 2014 uh, the um, lack of readiness by the world to give a proper response to Russian aggression led to the full-scale invasion, led to the current stage of, of this war. And actually, uh, it gives a, t- a hint on what can happen if Russia doesn't, gi- doesn't get a proper response now. 
if Russia doesn't get the severe response uh, or if it doesn't fail dire consequences of the uh, full-scale uh, invasion it launched. So um, nowadays, uh, regarding the situation uh, on the battleground and the prolonged nature of, of this war, um, there are these talks about the general fatigue of this war. And uh, in the Western media, you can find so many articles about very gloomy prognosis uh, on what would happen in Ukraine and what would be the outcome of this war. And uh, there are so many talks about the necessity of compromises or negotiations with the aggressor. Um, And responding to this fatigue issue, I would actually say that It's rather the story of people who find out about this war abroad, from people who do not live in it. Because uh, among Ukrainians, even though there is tiredness of war, uh, there is this psychological tension and Ukrainians are living under constant pressure, uh, still the, uh, the determination to win this war and the readiness to fight as long as it takes is still uh, it, it it still prevails so uh, when we talk about the uh, aggression when we talk about the existential threats and when we talk about the standing up to the aggressor to the enemy people are key here uh, they are the key factor and exactly the readiness of people and unity of people um plays the major role in uh giving this um, this resilient response to to the aggressor and uh before starting talking about what actually ukrainians think after this the two years after two years of the full-scale invasion it is important to know that despite the current uh tense difficult situation on the front lines despite um huge number of de- destructions and uh, a big amount of lives lost, Ukraine still managed to achieve um, impressive victories. And if we talk about the the territories that Ukraine managed to liberate, uh, up to this moment, uh, Ukraine liberated has liberated 40% of what Russians occupied since the 24th of February. And if we talk uh, about the occupation since 2014, it's 20 uh, ukraine liberated 28% of these lands and um talking about uh, ukrainians mood uh, ukrainians emotions about the war after 2 years of the full scale invasion uh, 85% of ukrainians still believe that ukraine will manage to repel the russian attack but of course there is a crucial condition and Ukrainians are aware of that and they emphasize that it is possible under condition of receiving international support. And that's true. Ukraine actually depends on supplies of weapons so that we are able to mm, give a proper response to Russian aggressors. Uh, If we talk about those who believe in absolute victory, uh, it's 42% of Ukrainians. So if we compare uh, this belief in absolute victory, um, if we compare this number with what was in June 2023, this 
number decreased. So uh, lesser amount of people in, in Ukraine believe in absolute victory. But what do we understand that under absolute victory? It's about the full uh, restoration of Ukrainian territorial integrity, etc. Uh, because um, when when people talk, tell about the ability of Ukraine to win, uh, it's... Mm, encompasses like several factors it's it might be absolute victory or i believe that uh, i rather believe that ukraine would win uh, so there are several several indicators here and uh, still the absolute majority of ukrainians 85% still believe that ukraine will manage to repel russian attack uh, so uh, ukrainians think that uh, for victory we need three key issues, three key things. First of all, it's weapons. And here Ukrainians um, mention not only uh, aid from abroad, but also uh, our own production. And also Ukrainians mention the anti-corruption measures and unity within uh, within Ukraine. Um, Talking about emotions, of course, Ukrainians feel more sadness and fear if we compare with uh, the period uh, half a year ago. But still, the dominant emotion that Ukrainians feel towards Ukraine is pride. 56% of Ukrainians are proud of their state. And uh, and talking about the length of war, um, Ukrainians, like uh, about 40% of Ukrainians, believe that the war will last um, more than a year. And um, it, it is a very interesting correlation here. Like, even though uh, well, quite a big percent of Ukrainians uh, think that the war will be prolonged, that it, it, it will last longer, still the majority of us uh, believe that we will win. So that's a telling uh, number, that's the telling um, telling connection between these two indicators that tell that even though Ukrainians are tired, they are still not ready to give up. They don't want to be they don't want to be eaten by the enemy. They don't want to be destroyed by the enemy. And uh, according to another uh, sociological agency, it is the Kiev International Institute of Soci Sociology. Um, according to the survey about uh, how Ukrainians see future of Ukraine in 10 years, 73% of Ukrainians still believe in prosperous Ukraine in the EU. Even though a year ago this amount of Ukrainians uh, consist, consisted 88%, still 73 is uh, a significant major, majority of Ukrainians. And... Uh, 65% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine will manage to get back the uh, territories in the borders of 1991, uh, while 32% of Ukrainians believe that losses are actually possible. But now I would like to um, tell about the most important, the most telling figure, 73% of Ukrainians are ready to endure the war as long as it's necessary. And after two years of the full-scale invasion, this indicator hasn't changed. 
So from the very beginning of the full-scale invasion till this moment, despite the rays of negative emotions, uh, despite some uh, tiredness, still Ukrainians are ready to endure this war as long as it takes. Because this war is not about territories. This war is about the existence of Ukraine itself and about the existence of Ukrainians as a nation. So what is uh, Ukrainian sociology tells is far uh, cry from actually that fatigue that would lead Ukrainians to uh, giving in. But what uh, European sociology tells, Dash? Uh, firstly, I want to say that I'm so proud to be part of this uh, resilient Ukrainian nation because the figures you told, uh, they like, draw attention to what we are fighting for, what we are feeling now, what we were feeling at uh, the beginning of the outburst of this war. And um, on the other hand, we have uh, a different situation among the European countries. So basically, we uh, have this survey commissioned by the European Council of uh, on Foreign Relations that showed that only 10% of residents of 12 European countries believe that Ukraine will defeat Russia on the battlefield. And the most widespread opinion is that the war will end in a compromise. The most optimistic countries are Poland, Portugal and Sweden. But even there, only 17% of respondents believe that Ukraine will win. And in Sweden, 19% um, believe that Russia will win. Everywhere except Poland and Portugal, more people expect Russia to win uh, than Ukraine. In Hungary, for example, 31%. In Greece, uh, this amounts to 30%. Mm, according to the survey, 52% of respondents would prefer to push Ukraine to a settlement, while a third of respondents would prefer um, rather to support Ukraine's intentions in regaining its territories. And the greatest support in this regard is among citizens of uh, Poland, uh, Portugal, for example, uh, Sweden. According to the report, uh, in Hungary, the majority of people expect Russia to win, and the majority of respondents want to push Ukraine to a settlement. And um, uh, I... like. Uh, drew my attention to the point that analysts noted that European society's support for Ukraine has been changing. And if we talk about this particular study, but in June 2022, it showed that many Europeans were in favor of a quick settlement, even at the cost of Ukraine losing territory. However, a year ago, the survey showed that the success of the Ukrainian army and um, the uh, demonstration of US leadership had changed the perception of the European public. Many Europeans wanted to support Ukraine until Kiev regained all its territories. Now, after Ukraine's maybe not uh, that much successful counteroffensive and um, against the backdrop of support in Western capitals, some lost this, you know, optimistic view. Um, what is interesting is to look at the results of another survey, um, uh, which was conducted by IBRIS, on the readiness to defend statehood with arms in hand uh, in European countries. In Poland, in the event of the armed attack by Russia, only 16% of citizens would volunteer to join, to, uh, join the uh, armed forces. A third of the respondents, that is 29%, said they would volunteer 
uh, 37% would go abroad with their families, um, and uh, 22% of Poles said they uh, would do nothing. And by the way, you are now hearing the uh, air alarm in Ukraine, so uh, we'll, we'll still continue this episode, but... Uh, um, at the same time, I want to, to say that while Europe supports peace and wants peace, it, it, it has to be ready for the war to, uh, to start and uh, uh, to repel the aggressor, because it's not only about, uh, you know, um, holding negotiations, it's about um, giving aggressor the right perception of what is rule-based um, world order and what uh, values means to others. Uh, continuing the, the, the idea, uh, I would want to say that in Estonia, for example, a recent poll showed that two-thirds of the population would be ready to participate in defense activities in the event of a foreign attack. Uh, 34% would definitely participate and 30 would rather be ready to participate. So you see uh, this um, like uh, changing uh, tendencies, that is, uh, Baltic states know uh, what it means, you know, to um, counter such uh, uh, such an aggressive neighbor, um, and uh, they show more readiness to to repel the attack and to uh, join uh, armed forces. Um, like so goes with the Lithuania, for example. And if we take the case of Germany, forty percent of citizens are not ready to defend their country with arms. Of the respondents, 17% are definitely ready to fight for their country, while 19% are probably uh, ready. So um, these these numbers speak volumes. And uh, um, basically, as I have already mentioned, uh, peace is what we all want. But behind that peace is justice, is uh, rules-based order uh, and um, the um, recognition or mutual recognition of borders and in this case um, i guess we cannot talk about any negotiations with aggressors who only understands the means of force right nastya that's true, Dasha. And what you've just mentioned is actually very illustrative and when we talk about peace when we talk about um like comfortable conditions of living, the life the way we uh, are used to. It's actually not only about uh, talks or it's definitely not about denying uh, the threats and trying to close, like trying to put the blind eye on what is going on. Because very often it happens so that if you want to live in peace, you need to get ready to fight. And that's actually what Ukraine is showing. Of course, all the Ukrainians want to live in peace. We are not uh, the aggressive nation. But to live in peace, we need to protect ourselves. Uh, we need to ensure the possibility of our nation to exist. That was actually peace is. Sometimes peace it should be fought for. And uh, when we talk uh, about this un unwillingness or unreadiness of Europeans to um, actually uh, fight for their own land, and especially when we talk about the, um, their willingness to push Ukraine to negotiations or to compromises, yeah, it may be a symptom of tiredness, of negative news. It may be the unwillingness to accept the reality the way it is, but 
at a certain point, this tiredness of negative news may grow, may transform into the real horrors of war. And uh, you've mentioned the values, the rule-based order, world order. These things are extremely important. I would say they are of paramount importance if we want to live um, like normal, comfortable lives. But if this story of values... Um, leaves someone indifferent if some people do not care about values they should think about their way of living so if uh, people want to have their good standards of life uh, if they want to feel free to express themselves to do whatever they want to do they actually should understand that in this case democracies should win the dictatorships because in the world where dictatorships are on top, when the dictatorships are ruling, this way of living is not possible to imagine. And getting back to the negotiations and this pressure on Ukraine to get in touch with Russia, to make compromises, uh, first of all, uh, I, I would emphasize exactly this aspect. We should uh, pay attention to Russian rhetoric. Actually, Russia doesn't show any signs of readiness to negotiations process. And uh, if it wants to uh, put the war on pause, it's only to, um, like to um, restore its uh, supplies, to restore its economy and get ready for the next wave of, uh, of aggression. And um, what is told by Russian officials, including their president, and what is expressed by the Russian propagandists, like the end uh, aims of the aggression against Ukraine remain actually unchanged. So what negotiations are we talking about if Russians keep saying about this vague so-called uh, denazification of Ukraine, uh, neutralization of Ukraine, etc.? So uh, their president tells that the uh, Russian aims of their so-called special operations, special operation, are to be fulfilled. So what does it mean? It means not some territorial gains, but actually the complete surrender of Ukraine. So uh, continuing this uh, point about unwillingness, Russian unwillingness to hold any negotiations, uh, there are some... Um, very rational factors that would make Russia not willing to do so. And currently the situation on the battlefield is favorable for, uh, for Russia. While Ukraine doesn't get necessary amount of weaponry uh, and uh, the number of uh, soldiers Russia has, which is much bigger than Ukraine have, has, uh, Russia wouldn't actually stop the war at this point, which is uh, favorable for it and which is unfavorable for Ukraine because it's the war of attrition and Ukraine cannot um, survive in this mode for, for long. And uh, when we talk about more conceptual things and things based on the rule of law, uh, like as I've mentioned, Ukraine wants peace. Ukraine isn't against the diplomatic resolution. But there is uh, a very important, uh, major and the only prerequisite of these negotiations. Like if Russia admits its loss, as uh, President Zelensky 
told uh, yesterday at his press conference after the uh, forum 2024. Uh, So Ukraine is ready to talk when there are no Russian troops on Ukrainian territories, when the Ukrainian borders are back on the line of 1991. And it's not, again, it's not about uh, our willingness to just get back our territories. It's about our people. It's about the survival of our country and our nation in general. So, uh, again, talking about the negotiations, uh, that's not something new for Ukraine. And uh, after the beginning of the full-scale invasion, uh, after the beginning of Russian aggression, not the full-scale invasion, uh, from 2014 till 2022, Ukraine hold 200 rounds of negotiations with Russia. There were 20 ceasefire agreements with Russia. And all these agreements were violated by uh, by the Russian side. And as we see in uh, 2022, the full-scale invasion has started, despite all this, these rounds of negotiations. So the uh, conclusion from, from here is quite clear and evident. It's not possible to talk with, with the aggressor exactly with this aggressor, because these talks showed no result. And if we are talking about the aggressors in general, if they do not receive proper response, it gives them hands free to continue their aggression. It's uh, this kind of unwinding spiral of aggression. So if you let an aggressor to take something, then it would like to take more. And uh, pose of the, uh, the in this war would mm, just make Russia stronger, and uh, not only Russian regime but all the dictatorships in the world would actually understand that they can do whatever they want, and the the world would just um, would just fulfill what they ask for uh, in the fear of further aggression. But as the result what would be received is actually the escalation of aggression. And we talk not, not only about Europe, and Russia is not, is not the only dictatorship on the globe. So the uh, hotspots of aggression uh, can burn out in any part of the globe, actually, especially in the Middle East and Africa. But of course, Europe is in the grave danger. And um, let's remember what Putin told about the full-scale aggression against Ukraine, like sometime before actually it happened. He told that fighting with Ukraine like sounds like a nonsense and Russia would never do that. And the result is what we are actually experiencing, what we actually see. And that uh, tells loads about, uh, about the credibility of Russian words. Are they trustworthy? And if um, some in Europe don't believe that um, Russia is strong enough to continue its aggression further in Europe, um, I wouldn't say that it's not imp- uh, that's that's not possible. It's actually mm, very very possible, and especially when uh, Putin, during this notorious uh, interview to Tucker Carlson. Uh, told that Russia has no plans to attack uh, Poland. Uh, it uh, recalled me that moment when uh, Putin told that Russia didn't have plans to attack Ukraine. So if we don't want uh, the world uh, entering in this 
chaotic state, even though there are uh, huge problems now. If we want to live in the uh, rule-based world, but not in the world uh, where rule of force dominates, we should ensure the defeat of Russia. Not compromise, not some kind of talks and business as usual, but the defeat of aggressors so that all the aggressors around the globe understand that uh, the international law rules are unviolable. And uh, in this regard, the unity of the whole world is actually what is of crucial importance. Um, I would also say that uh, what you've just told uh, is that basically compelling and strategic reasons are needed for negotiations to take place. And um, I only want to add two, you know, like arguments why uh, this is not the case for the uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. Firstly, a country striving for the obliteration of another sovereign state through denying its existence of a particular uh, with its nation, as you just mentioned, the rhetoric of uh, Kremlin, whitewashing genocides of the past with dehumanization and displacing one nation by others, is the formula of committing genocide. That means that no rational reasoning would reach those driven by such imperial uh, limitations. Moreover, I want to remind that Ukraine has already experienced a frozen war, as well as attempts to resolve the war through negotiations. We all remember the Normandy format pathed the way to the Minsk agreements, which set out terms for a ceasefire and outlined steps towards political resolutions. Uh, surely we um, shouldn't underestimate the um, state of the armed forces back then, so for some reason, it was done for uh, Ukraine gaining strength and consolidation uh, because we know that Yanukovych regime uh, strikingly uh, load, lowered the level of uh, preparedness of armed forces to repel the aggressor. And um, circling back to, to the point I mentioned, if some formats were considered at the start of the war, such as a 10-point Istanbul communique with extremely far-reaching, I would say, Ukrainian concessions, it no longer makes sense after discovering atrocities in occupied territories. And um, as we have already mentioned it for multiple times, Russia doesn't de-escalate tensions during negotiations, but takes a course of escalation. Uh, that is the reason, you know, to increase pressure on Ukraine, to like to negotiate and uh, then just posing um, the ultimatum, either you uh, are ready to negotiate or we will kill more people. And that was um, wh what was happening during negotiations in Turkey, as we all remember, while Russian criminals barraged Mariupol, for example. So peace talks are meaningful without uh, the withdrawal of Russian troops from the occupied territories till the border of 1991, reintegration of these territories into Ukraine, reparations, um, each and every war criminal um, being punished, um, and uh, the abolition of any like uh, gray zones. And uh, the final point uh, is that I remember the research initiative at the University of Uppsala in Sweden that uh, found out that only 57 of 372 conflict episodes or 
ended in a peace agreement between 1946 and 2005. So um, political consequentialists underestimate the consequences of Russia's appeasement, which seeks time to, as you nice mentioned, regroup uh, uh, after like losses and prepare for the next defensive operation. Because as uh, some Kremlin-based um, propagandists said that uh, Russian forces retreat from Kiev oblast, Kharkiv oblast, because this was, this was a gesture of uh, kind will or uh, anything anything other they, that they made up, that, that doesn't, uh, that, that isn't true and um, that doesn't make any sense because basically they suffered great losses and they couldn't continue their offensive uh, operation. And I want to say that any temporary solution that preserves the status quo on the battlefield will give second life for survival of dictatorship at stake. And um, as we have already mentioned, world security is about um, rules-based international order rather than concessions to imperial appetites that will grow over the time. And uh, again, Lee, now they say that Poland is of no interest of imperial appetites, and then Everything might happen, and as we know, uh, NATO allies preparing plans in case of uh, Russia's plans are going to be implemented. And that is the uh, reasoning for our formula, that while front line is defending us with um, weapon, we, who are the rear of this front, has to put each and every effort to support its um so-called stability and provide with all that it needs. And that's the reason why, for example, uh, except for direct support of weapons, we have such tool as sanctions, because sanctions prevent from the aggressor, in our case, Russian Federation, to uh, obtain more weapons, more economic power, more military power. And we know that European Union has agreed on a new package of such sanctions. This 13th package is known as most comprehensive up to date. It includes 106 individuals and 88 legal entities. These companies and individuals are involved in the supply of arms from North Korea to Russian Federation, deportation of Ukrainian children. And uh, in total, uh, the EU's restrictive measures against actions that undermine or threaten Ukraine's territorial integrity um, now apply to more than 2,000 individuals and legal entities. So these individuals are subject to assets um, freezes and uh, EU citizens and companies are prohibited from providing funds to them. Uh, individuals are also subject to any entry ban which prohibits them from entering or transiting the EU. So uh, the EU added uh, 27 new entities to the list of uh, those uh, directly supporting Russia's military industrial complex. Uh, they are subject to more stricter expert restrictions on dual-use goods and technologies and those that contribute to the technolo technological like advancement of uh, the Russian defense and security sector. Uh, some of these companies are based in third countries like China, India, Sri Lanka, Serbia, Turkey, and they helped Russia to circumvent sanctions. And um, I remember previously we talked about four different types of, um, you know, sanctions on spheres where sanctions work. And the problem is that there are dual-use goods, uh, 
and they can be weaponized, wh- which we uh, like experience and uh, evidence by uh, Russia, and then use on the battlefield. That's that's the problem of that dual use goods that can be um, appropriately like uh, used by Russian forces. Uh, and um, again, circling back to the point why these sanctions uh, make sense, because uh, by doing so, we support the front line. The front line that's now uh, ongoing, it's um, harsh uh, time, it's harsh phase, and we uh, can't help but mentioning the developments on the sphere. Indeed, the developments on the front line remain very difficult. But uh, I, I would say, uh, using the words of the analysts and the Ukrainian military, even though it's difficult, it's still not hopeless. Uh, but there are certain conditions that should be um, should be kept so that this situation doesn't transform into uh, into disaster. So first, let's talk about the actually the events on the battleground and um, the. Biggest attention is actually focused on the Avdivka area and uh, the Zaporizhia direction. Talking about the Avdivka di- direction, uh, after uh, it, uh, f- after Adi- Avdivka uh, fell, fell, the Russian forces um, continued moving forward, and the last week there were uh, news about the. Russians capturing the village of Lastochkina, which is located near Avdivka. Uh, so uh, Ukrainian forces retreated uh, from uh, from the village to uh, avoid cutting logistical routes and to save uh, lives of our soldiers. And actually, saving life of Ukrainian soldiers has become it was and it continues to be the uh, key priority for Ukrainians. Because uh, our army is not that numerous as Russian army. And our task here is to fight smartly, while Russians, having all their uh, sources, resources, uh, can use this um, meat-grinder assaults, uh, not caring about people's lives at all. And uh, on the one hand, it gives uh, the Russians uh, upper hand uh, because they can continue attacking like endless- endlessly. But in Ukrainian situation, uh, it's about values, it's about the philosophy of Ukrainians, and it's also about the uh, rational components, because our army is not that numerous. And and as the uh, president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky, mentioned, the ratio on the uh, battlefield is one Ukrainian soldier against seven Russian soldiers. Uh, the next hot spot uh, on the front line is the Zaporizhia direction, and here Russians are trying to uh, to take uh, Robotene, uh, which uh, which is quite an important point on the map. Uh, it uh, was liberated from Russians in August 2023, and its importance is. Not strategic, but not strategic, but but tactical. But still, it is located on the way to Tokmak. Uh, the town is logistical hub of Russian armed forces, and the control over uh, this route is um, extremely important for Ukrainians in terms of uh, of the stability of the front line and future counteroffensive operations in the southern direction. 
so uh, Russians were launching assaults uh, on Robotina five days in a row. And uh, these attempts were unsuccessful. According to Ukrainian officials, the uh, Robotina is still under Ukrainian control. Uh, however, some Western medias, including Bild, are told that uh, Russians uh, took Robotina. However, uh, the fights are ongoing and they are very intensive. And there is no confirmation from the Ukrainian side about the uh, loss uh, of, of Robotina. So the Parisian direction remains uh, one of the key directions for uh, for the Russians uh, and uh, they actually want to take the city itself and they want to uh, get to the uh, borders of uh, the Parisian Oblast. It is one of their strategic uh, plans, strategic uh, um, aim. Uh, so that is why the uh, battle actions, the combat actions are intensified in that in that part of the front line as well. Uh, talking about talking about Krynki in Kherson uh, Oblast, uh, the Russian military propagandists were trying to present uh, Krynki as uh, being recaptured by Russians, but it was actually a special uh, information informational operation. Uh, Krynki are still uh, under Ukrainian control, and they remain this bridgehead of Ukrainian armed forces in the left bank of Kherson uh, Oblast. So uh, all these uh, events on the front lines are can be explained by the mixture of different um, different uh, factors, and the factor of uh, lack of weaponry is actually one of the key ones, one one of the major ones. And as the Ukrainian Minister of Defense Rustem Umerov told, um, the our Western partners. Uh, are delaying uh, weapons supplies and uh, Ukraine hasn't got a half uh, of what was promised. And these delays actually heavily influence the situation on the ground and it doesn't let uh, the Ukrainian side to fulfill effective actions on the battleground. So currently Russians uh, launched, launched their assaults in five directions. And um, they are able to do so exactly because Ukrainians lack of ammunition and our army is not that numerous as Russian, the Russian one. Uh, and according to Major Oleksiy Hetman, um, Russian assaults might stop by the presidential elections there. So what is going on now, this uh, slight movements, advancements uh, by Russian army, which have uh, rather symbolic and no more than tactical uh, significance meaning, uh, they might stop by the election period so that uh, Russian public could see some, uh, let's say, small victories, uh, and uh, it would solidify the support of for their president. And uh, this break uh, by the presidential elections in Russia is needed by the Russian forces to get ready for the further offensive. And uh, this, uh, this prognosis is much more alarming, actually. And the Ukrainian President Zelensky also mentioned about 
the possibility of further uh, Russian offensive. Uh, Zelensky told that Russia is preparing its uh, its further offensive actions in the end of spring and in the or in the beginning of summer. Uh, but uh, Ukrainian military uh, tell that um, it is possible in in summer or in the beginning of autumn. And uh, this uh, break that is going to take place in the beginning of uh, spring will be used for further mobilization. So by uh, by the beginning of summer, Russian Russia might have a, um, a million army, which is actually very alarming. And in this regard, this uh, change of strategy and use of uh, you bigger use um, of technology is of critical importance for Ukraine. And um, the deputy commander-in-chief of Ukrainian armed forces, Vadim um, uh, Sukharevsky, told that actually Ukraine is getting ready uh, for a new technological stage of war and is getting ready for change tactics. And uh, he announced about uh, new units of uh, unmanned system forces. So these new units may uh, might um, uh, start acting uh, very soon. And in general, Ukrainian leadership, uh, including military leadership, told that Ukraine has a plan for 2024, and Ukraine even has a um, new plan for counteroffensive. But of course, the details of these plans cannot be uh, uncovered uh, because it, it's very sensitive information. But it is important that uh, despite these difficulties, Ukraine still has action plans. Uh, so uh, there is a very interesting figure to tell about um, to like end this blog. Uh, Rustem Omerov, Ukrainian uh, Minister of Defense, told that the length of um, front line is 3,200 kilometers. And the active battle, uh, active combat actions are taking place along 1,200 kilometers. So just imagine the uh, huge scope of uh, combat actions and uh, think about the uh, number, the um, the number, the how huge the Russian army is, and the Ukrainians are actually taking titanic efforts to protect their own lands. And in this regard, the uh, weapons supplies, even though Ukraine is amassing its own production uh, and um, Ukraine is working on development of its modern technological weapons, still the uh, supplies from abroad remain very critical, especially when we talk about long-range uh, missiles. And in this case, I want to tell about that German MPs have voted overwhelmingly in favor of a draft resolution demanding that Ukraine be provided with long-range missiles. And the relevant document is a coalition document, uh, unlike the opposition one, which was rejected a little earlier. The decision was uh, up to German uh, Councillor Olaf Scholz, so um, heads up in uh, looking for the further developments in this sphere. And moreover, UK Defence Secretary Grant Sheps announced that the UK would provide Ukraine with uh, 200 more Brimstone uh, anti-tank missiles and train over 
uh, 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Initially, these missiles were designed to be fire and forget, and uh, the munitions themselves were equipped with uh, a millimeter-range rudder heads, but uh, the military operations in Afghanistan showed that the need to add laser guidance to the brimstone uh, as the rules of engagement required the inclusion of uh, an operator. The new dual-mode version of this missile can either aim itself at a target using its own radar or be guided by the weapon operator in the air or on the ground using a laser channel. So we see a changed narrative of warfare. For example, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, Secretary General of NATO, said that Ukraine will have the right to launch strikes on the territory of Russia when it receives F-16 fighters. And uh, in this regard, Andros Marilo, who is further uh, commander of the Estonian Defense Forces, said that in military terms, um, Western partners restricting Ukraine from using their weapons to target military uh, aims uh, at the territory of Russia was a, a clear stupidity, as he told. Uh, the imposition of this restriction was very costly and uh, is also one of the reasons why Ukraine has uh, returned to a defensive position and is trying to repel the Russian counteroffensive. And I guess there is nothing left to say but uh, recall the events of uh, last year when uh, at a security conference in Munich, President Zelensky referenced the biblical story of David and Goliath when he said after David stunned Goliath with his sling, he beheaded his opponent. The moral is not only to neutralize, but to prevent from rejuvenation. And this is how the perception of Ukraine's victory should shift from preventing Russia from winning to supporting Ukraine in its victory. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and chief editor of Ukraine World. I was joined by my colleagues Anastasia Hersimchuk and Darya Sunhayevska, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. They have discussed key events in and around Ukraine for the last week. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.